thank you very much for your kind words. Thank you for your invitation. I am so happy to be back to Oxford and to be with so many of my colleagues and friends. So I'm very grateful to this. I would like to tell you a tale of a Saha tale of two squares, one dark, confining and seemingly personifying the tradition of the harem, the other bright, open to the world, where women are free to come and go, and most importantly, to speak as freely as men. A saha can either be a confining space or open to the outside world. In one such dark square, the most wanted man in the world lived. In his seclusion, despite all the fears for his safety, he recreated for himself the ideal of the Arab patriarchal system. There he was, no telephone, no internet, yet with three young wives waiting at his every whim. On the night that his life ended, the co-wives were on the front line of his defense. Yes, the example of Osama bin Laden and his labyrinth of solitude may sound to you as an extreme case of Arab and Islamic patriarchy. But in reality, the structure of his family exists and it is no different from that of many thousands of others in the region. Perhaps the only normal aspect of Osama bin Laden's daily life is that he lived the domestic dream of Arab men. Wives, co-wives of rulers, royals, tribal chiefs, clerics, and any man who can buy servitude in the guise of traditional polygamous marriage keeping their women in similar confinements of the dark Saha square. Let me take you to another square, to Saha al-Tahrir, Freedom Square in the heart of Cairo. There, in the open air, hundreds of thousands of women of different ages, different educational backgrounds, and different religions and different sects declared, we are Egypt. When faced with the army at the end of January of this year, a matronly woman in hijab reached for the young soldier sitting inside his tank, grabbed him by the collar and placed a heartful kiss on his cheek exclaiming, we are all in the search of freedom and dignity. Instead of placing a carnation 
At the muzzle of his gun, she planted a kiss on his cheek. The unexpected assertiveness of women in the unfolding revolutions across the Arab world, from Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Bahrain, Syria, and elsewhere, has been a driving force of what is known as the Arab Awakening, the Arab Spring. The governance macro changes that will emerge in these countries are only part of the story. The other part is the macro changes that occur in the minds and lives of the individual women, helping them to break out of the constraints of the past, to live like free, productive, and dignified human beings. Contrary to claims, the people in the Middle East understand democracy very well. They proved that the, if the people demand their rights, they cannot be stopped. The uprisings have proven the weakness of dictatorships. Since January 2011, the faces of millions of women demonstrating alongside men beamed through Arab satellite television stations, YouTube, and on the front of the international newspapers. Women from all walks of life, university students, graduates, mothers, marching with hope for a better future in their countries. Women appeared prominently. They were, you will recall, the most eloquent and outspoken. Daily marching, holding caricature posters of dictators, chanting calls for freedom and dignity. They walked, bussed, traveled in carts, telephoned and tweeted with compatriots. In cases of state violence, women were confronted by security forces, some killed and many injured. But yet, they raised their voices ever stronger in solidarity with demands for democratic change, the end of tyranny and authoritarian governments. Behind their calls stands a series of social demands to end dependency and poverty, and above all, to give power to an intelligent, highly capable female population. We are Egypt, shouted Nawara Negri, one of the leaders of the revolution in Cairo's Tahrir Square. On the 11th of February, the day Mubarak finally departed as president. The Sahat squares for freedom, for change, multiplied across the Arab world with thunderous cries of women, a tsunami of change across frozen borders. In Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, Sahat al-Taghir, Change Square, 
became the symbol for a better future. We are Yemen, asserted Tawakkul Karman, head of the NGO Women Journalists Without Chains. She spoke in Tahrir Square on behalf of the women outraged at the president's innuendo directed at ladies who march and speak in public. The president of Yemen said on the 16th of April last month, I call on the opposition to prevent mixing between male and female protesters in the square as it is in, forbidden in Islamic law. This is a classic bit of politicking in the hope of dividing the opposition, many of whom are women. What millions of Arab men and women were saying as they stood united in peaceful protest was that their way at achieving Arab and Islamic dignity is inclusive and egalitarian. The protesters of the Arab Spring did not need to use and abuse Islam to achieve their ends. They did not wait for God to change their condition, but took the initiative by peacefully confronting their obsessors. This is based on a Quranic verse. Inna allaha la yughayyiru ma biqawmin hatta yughayyiru ma bianfusihim. God will not change the condition of a people until they change it themselves. The Arab revolutions mark the emergence of a pluralist, post-Islamist banner for all citizens. In Sahat al-Tahrir, we heard Egyptians from all walks of life chant, Muslims, Christians, we are one. Indeed, the only people who introduce religion into the protest have been the rulers, such as those in Bahrain, Yemen, Libya, Syria, and Saudi Arabia, the guardian of Islamic probity. Rulers have tried to use fear of the Shia, the Sunni, the other, to, de to divide and misrule their societies. The Saudi rulers have gone as far as announcing that demonstrations are haram, sinful, punishable by, in this life, jail and flogging. What is the condition of the women in these sahat, the squares. Let us look at their turbulent journey towards freedom. According to Freedom House report in 2010, entitled Women's Rights in the Middle East and North Africa, I quote, 
women throughout the region continue to face systematic discrimination in both laws and social customs and experience the lowest levels of fundamental rights. Women are also significantly underrepresented in senior positions in politics and the private sector. In some countries, they are completely absent from the judiciary. They also say the unequal status of women represents a formidable obstacle to the overall democratic advancement of the Middle East and North Africa. End of quote. The Arab countries have had the highest concentration of dictatorship in the world. They are also, says the United Nations Arab Human Development Report, among the countries with the most stifled economies. It is not a coincidence that these are also the countries in which the public profile of women is amongst the lowest in the world. What is striking about the Arab world in the 21st century is that the faces of presidents and kings are everywhere, while the faces of women are forcibly hidden. There are certainly connections between dictatorship at the top and the political and social marginalization of women. In Egypt, the ousted President Husni Mubarak had ruled for 28 years in a state of permanent emergency and was hoping for a dynastic transition for his son, Jamal. In Yemen, President Ali Abdullah Saleh ruled with an iron fist in the hope of transferring the presidency to his son, Ahmed. The Gulf state monarchies sustained sheikhs, emirs, kings with oil wealth and a traditional male hereditary system. Oil has been described as a curse, that is, if oil comes before democracy. The power of oil wealth is unearned, like the power of patriarchy is unearned. It allows the state autonomy over society. So this power has been deployed to force women back in the private uh, sphere. Before oil, women worked in traditional occupations. Their daughters were turned into modern housewives, trapped into societal cages. Nowhere else do we see modernity experienced as such a problem. Saudi Arabia offers the ultimate example of these contradictions. Skyscrapers rise from the desert sand while women are not permitted to ride in the elevators with men. And they're not allowed to walk in the street, sit behind the wheel of a car. 
or leave the country without permission of their mehrim, male guardian. This grim picture of despotism with a variety of faces has been entirely that of a male abuse of power. Indeed, the repression of women in the Arab region remains a basic element of the political order. There has not been a single female Arab ruler, neither by inheritance nor by election. Why? Is it because of Islamic obstacles or extreme patriarchal dominance? The men who built these social and legal structures say that this is Islam. It is certainly not Islamic tradition that accounts for this exclusion of women from politics. Because other Muslim countries, Turkey, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, have all had women presidents and prime ministers in the 20th century. The Arab countries, particularly the Gulf pseudo monarchies, stand out as the most patriarchal and repressive in any one region of the world. So we all know that there is a link between democracy and the empowerment of women. And yet, in the Arab world, these links are either broken or non-existent. What keeps women down and out of society's mainstream? There are a number of obstacles. The most important is the rule of law. The rule of law is the rule of misogyny. The judicial system is a deliberate obstacle to women's aspirations. The law not only strengthens the patriarchal system, but patriarchy has become the driving force of the law. Added to this, the judicial system relies on Islamic interpretations that protect a defensive patriarchal system. In Saudi Arabia, women are barred from the legal profession on the basis of interpretations a woman is lacking in mind and religion. The legal status of women in Arab countries receives particular attention in the Arab Human Development Report. This includes concerns over basic rights of political participation, including the right to vote, to hold public office, and to exercise public functions. Attention is drawn to the fact that women's legal status has been linked to marriage, making them dependent on their husbands, 
rather than individuals in their own right. Demands are, that are given special emphasis are women's rights to non-discrimination in education, employment, economic and social activities. According to the United Nations Gender Inequality in Economic Activity report, Yemen, the poorest Arab country, rates as the lowest in the Arab world in women's participation in the economy, while Saudi Arabia, the richest Arab country, ranks higher in the Human Development Index, and yet, just as Libya, women are completely absent from employment in agriculture, industry, and as family workers. In 2010, 67% illiteracy rates among women in Yemen. Yemeni women have limited access to health care and only one uh, of 301 MPs is a woman. According to the 2010 Gender Inequality Report, Saudi Arabia ranks as one of the highest in the world in terms of gender inequality, only followed by Yemen and then Iraq. In Saudi Arabia, the religious educational system constitutes up to 50% of students' curriculum. As a result, Wahhabi religious dogma penetrates every home in the country. It is above all an educational system designed to consolidate the traditionalist patriarchal social order. Textbooks, pink for the girls, blue for the boys, of course with different context. They emphasize the rules prescribed by the father of Wahhabism, Imam Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, he lived in the 18th century, and enforced by the Al Saud rulers. When I was five years old, there were no schools for girls in Saudi Arabia other than the traditional kutab, schools for the memorization of the Quran and the Hadith. The Wahhabi religious establishment, the co-rulers of the kingdom, considered female education dangerous. But in 1963, the Wahhabis had been persuaded that women's education was not so dangerous if education is to make them better mothers. So, Dar al-Hanan, house of tenderness, opened. And I was one of first nine female students in the kingdom to read from the pink books, <laughs> assigned to my gender and suitable for the nature of women, as defined by the clerics. 
Fortunately, my education was not limited to those books. And ranged from Baghdad's School of the Virgin Mary, where I was taught by Iraqi Catholic nuns, to Lausanne's Chateau Mouchoisie, a Swiss finishing school, to Brimmore College in Pennsylvania, where I discovered American feminism, and finally, Oxford. Most other women are trapped in the system and have no alternative but to conform to 21st century harems. They live as privileged housewives, producing seven children each, some accepting polygamous marriages and restrictions on employment. They continue to suppress their own personal aspirations in the name of a patriarchal version of Islam. What about the women who have seen what freedom can deliver but remain trapped in this dark Saha. Some remain angry, and the collective anger stems from wasted talents that have been squandered over generations by incompetent rulers. Some cover their anger with black veils as a barrier to the world. And what about the poor women in rural areas who cannot get education and access to the fruits of globalization. But globalization knows no restraint and is reaching the younger generation of women. While some clerics, Salafi clerics, issue fatwas that a woman cannot access the internet without the presence of a male guardian. <laughs> I have seen nine-year-old girls chat online, unsupervised, challenging old dogma. Many women remain secretly glued to the satellite television screens, watching their peers in the sahat of freedom and of change, sahat that are beyond their reach, but not beyond their imagination. Zainab, a young woman from Medina, she sent me an email at the height of the revolution in Egypt. Forget about cries for freedom. I can't even give birth without being accompanied to hospital by a mehrim, the male guardian. And she continued, the mutawa, these are the members of the official committee for the ordering of the good and the forbidding of the evil. She said the mutawa, the religious police, have been given the right to humiliate us in public and question our Islamic faith. The reality is that autocratic rulers have been battling the forces of globalization for the last decade. The winds of globalization have blown away the robes of the Arab rulers, so they lost their robes. The robes they wore in the past 
symbolized an era in which patriarchal system was the norm. Their acolytes keep telling them that they are still perfectly, royally dressed, but the rest of the population sees their nakedness. Internal pressures combined with external forces eat away at the fabric of the old regimes. The forces of globalization have certainly changed the climate of opinion and sentiment, as we have seen in Cairo, Tunisia, Tripoli, and Sana'a. The political temperature is rising, and the population at large has lost faith in the ruler's ability to reform. It is not Abdullah or Ali Abdullah nor Muammar nor Hamad that are in the driving seat. If the old cycle of inertia is to be broken, it will be by globalization and Arab women who are empowered by it. Women will tailor it to their special societal and political needs. The old royals and presidents do not even grasp what it is that their people are demanding, let alone their women. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter have all helped bring down the walls of opacity. The 70% of the Arab population who are under the age of 30 are predominantly internet savvy. Recent uprisings have awakened civil society. And women are working for civil society. NGOs, bloggers have been conducive to this moment of profound change. Dictatorships contain within their fortress walls deep rot an arbitrary, coercive, and corrupt system that denies its subjects its fundamental political rights and social justice. This patriarchal power appeared to be set in stone. But as we see in the open sahat of freedom and of change, the cracks can no longer be papered over by a religious subterfuge and male diktat. The stone has begun to fracture. No state in the Arab world is being spared the sudden wrath of its people, including the fortress of patriarchy. The people have made common cause rising from years of misrule and repression through the use of new technologies in new media adopted by young people. The demographics of the population are simply too lopsided in favor of younger generations versus the old ruling oligarchy. All these factors are plentiful in the region. A youthful majority, abundance of computers, and deepening social and political resentments and alienation.
women in the Arab world are at the crossroads. What does it mean to arrive at the crossroads? It means to be confronted by choice of direction. The choice confronting them today is between an open vision of Islam as a way of embracing the modern or a closed vision, vainly rejecting the realities of our time and living in the dark Sahat. A less familiar way of thinking about crossroads is to look at the directions they are approached from. The directions are an essential part or basis for making the choice. Individuals draw on their lived experiences when they face the crossroads and decide how to go forward. At this time of revolutions, very few women are opting for the dark Saha. Their revolt may stumble, tyrants may unleash repression, religious hierarchies may attempt to take over. In Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood this month accepted a Copt Christian in their organization, but not a woman. Collectively, we are at a time in our history where our individual or group choices intimately affect everyone, everybody else. We are all at the crossroads together. We all share bonds of communality, of experience, aspiration, and hope. So here, at our meeting place tonight in Oxford, we, we must come together and help the women in the Sahat of freedom integrate in the globalized world and fulfill their potential and their aspirations for respect and dignity. Ladies and gentlemen, as I speak, a brave woman, Manal al-Sharif, has been approaching that crossroad. But tonight, she sits in a Saudi prison for having dared to drive in defiance of the ban on women behind the wheel. Like Rosa Park, who by refusing to go to the back of the bus sparked the American Civil Rights Revolution, bravery has a chance with our support to bring down the dark Sahat, dark squares that imprison women. Thank you.